0: It's Sunday, November 18th. I'm Mercedes Stevenson for a special edition of the West Block. We're here in Halifax at the International Security Forum, where political and military leaders representing over 70 countries are here to talk about the biggest issues in global peace and security. From war and propaganda to populism, it's all on the agenda. We begin today with an interview with Deputy Secretary General of NATO, Rose Gottemaler. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's my welcome pleasure. to Halifax. Thank you very much. My first question for you is what is the biggest threat facing NATO right now?
1: NATO really looks at, uh, at two uh, threats that are really, I would say, of equal weight to the alliance. One is uh, the threats that are emanating from our neighborhood to the north and east, and, and frankly, we were very concerned starting in twenty fourteen with Russia's seizure of Crimea and the destabilization of, of the eastern part of Ukraine, the Donbass. So clearly we have to be alert to those challenges that Russia poses us uh, from the north all the way down to the southeast of the alliance. But in addition to that, we are very concerned and 2014 again was the watershed year. That was the rise of ISIS, their seizure of Mosul, their uh, turning toward a caliphate. So we've had also a major threat from violent extremism and terrorism to confront. And so I would say each of those has equal attention in the NATO headquarters.
0: Do you think that there's concern NATO has become ineffective against Russia in the sense that they are still in Crimea and Donbass poisoning of people who they don't like in England, cyber interference, propaganda attacks, including here in Canada where we've seen that. Are they really being deterred by NATO?
1: It's interesting that this is a global challenge. I think these kinds of hybrid threats, uh, these kinds of, how shall I put it, uh, uh, episodes of mischief-making are, are really global. Russia's a player. We also are concerned about China. We're concerned about North Korea. We're concerned about Iran. So NATO alone cannot confront all of these threats, but we have to think about it as, as really a global, a global problem that all players have to to work on responsibly confronting. I would say, and we just came off our Trident Juncture exercise up in Norway, and here for the first time in many years, the NATO alliance showed that it was up to the task of collective defense in uh, an important way and that we had to move major amounts of troops and equipment from North America across to Europe and then up to Norway for this exercise. This is something that the alliance has not done in a couple of decades. So I think it shows that yes, NATO's, uh, NATO's got what it takes.
0: But the Russians interfered in that. They were jamming GPS signals.
1: We'd expect them to do that. And that was something that was very clear from our, uh, from our exercise uh, leaders. They said, we expect that kind of play from the Russians. And in fact, I thought this was fascinating. They said, it gave our guys better practice because having a kind of real-time effort by the Russians to impinge on the exercise gave our guys a better chance to uh, f- to figure out what they needed to do and to respond.
0: I'm wondering about a different kind of threat, perhaps rival force. There's been this discussion, uh, especially from Merkel and Macron, uh, about what they call a real European army, setting up a defense force, a military that is all these different European countries coming together that would suggest to me that maybe they don't have a lot of faith in NATO.
1: <laughs> well, frankly, this has been a long-standing debate and discussion. If you look back over the last, uh, last 40 years, there have been waves of discussion about European defense capabilities. Frankly, from where I sit in NATO headquarters in Brussels, same with my boss, Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, it's a good thing if the European allies pull up their socks and begin spending more on defense. This has been clear from the time of, of again, the Russian seizure of Crimea, the so-called Wales defense, uh, defense Investment Pledge in 2014, called on all allies to increase their defense spending, to begin uh, spending 2% of GDP and to try to reach that goal by 2024. So this has been really a long-standing push from headquarters. And when you talk about the European spending war in a European environment, That's okay from their perspective, but three important conditions have to be met. First, those forces that are developed in Europe have to be available for NATO missions and operations. Second, we can't have competing requirements coming from the European Union and from NATO. When we're asking the same countries, European Union members and NATO countries, to build up capabilities, they have to be the same requirements. And then we also have to be able to engage non-EU NATO allies who are extraordinarily important to the alliance, the United States, Canada, Turkey in the south, Norway in the north, the Western Balkans countries, they have to be fully engaged in the European efforts as well. So it's a matter of not shutting the rest of the the uh, non-EU NATO allies out. That's the issue.
0: Uh, I know that the chairman of the NATO military committee right here in Halifax was expressing concern about this, uh, that there could be competition for resources and there is limited spending. Some are suggesting part of the reason for why the Europeans are wondering if they need their own force when they already have NATO is that they don't trust America to back the alliance anymore in collective defense, with Donald Trump as the president. You are an American. How do you think Donald Trump's presidency has affected NATO? Uh,
1: well, first and foremost, uh, President Trump has been very tough about pushing the burden-sharing message. And again, I think that's a good thing. It's helped really to reverse the cuts from 2014 on. We have seen an increase in defense spending but just over the last 2 years since president trump came to office there's been an additional 41 billion that has flowed in actually it's getting higher i understand it's now about 47 billion so the the funds are increasing and we have stopped uh, what had been really a drop off in defense spending among nato allies so i think that's a really really important uh, a, a really important positive aspect of uh, of what's been going on since president trump came office. Now, I just heard uh, General Dunford, who's speaking here, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and he laid down a really important message, which I think is right at the heart of your question. He said very clearly that he would not want to go to war without the NATO allies and Other allies and partners. Of course the United States has allies in Asia as well, but I thought that was a really important message and it is right at the heart about how uh, the United States thinks about defense. Without allies and partners the United States would not want to go to war.
0: Is it difficult though when you're an American in NATO and you have the President publicly questioning the relevancy of what has been the backbone of European security for decades?
1: I don't think it does any harm to keep asking tough questions. I've always felt that way. When somebody is asking you tough questions, you don't get complacent. And I can tell you for an honest fact, there is no complacency in the quarters of the NATO headquarters right now. All allies are paying attention to these important issues, and particularly
0: to defense burden sharing. Canada has troops in Iraq. Do you think that that mission, which is a NATO mission, is going to continue? It's
1: just getting started, actually. And by the way, I wanted to say a big thank you to Canada. Canada's been active over many years, of course, in Ukraine. You are um, the lead nation for the battle group on the borders with Russia in Latvia. It's been terrific the kind of leadership Canada has been taking. And now Canada has stepped forward to take the leadership of our new training mission in Iraq. And this is going to make a big difference to. Really, I think, restoring the institution of the Iraqi Army uh, Armed Forces um, training and education overall, but also helping them deal with some real-time problems like the massive amount of unexploded ordnance and training people to deal with unexploded ordnance with mines and that type of thing. So there's some nitty-gritty aspects to it, very practical, but also important to the future of defense institution building in Iraq, and Canada's right at the front and center of that, so we're really grateful.
0: You mentioned Canadian troops, and certainly I I believe the vast majority of our troops who are deployed are on NATO missions. But we're not meeting that 2% defence spending target. And what the government tries to argue is, oh, but we're meeting it in other ways with troops. Do you accept that argument, or should Canada be spending more?
1: Well, we do talk about the three Cs, and I want to make it clear. Cash is one thing. Enhanced defense spending through defense budgets is one thing, but also capabilities and contributions, such as contributing troops to a mission abroad, as as Canada has been doing. So all three of those go into how we think about defense burden sharing in the alliance. But uh, frankly, um, It is important for all the NATO allies who are not yet spending 2% of GDP on defense to pay attention to that commitment made in Wales in the Defense Investment Pledge to move in that direction by 2024. So we'll continue talking to our Canadian Alliance members about that matter. But let me just say I'm really uh, very, very impressed with the contributions that Canada has been making. Again, I was talking about Trident Juncture a moment ago. That's up in Norway. It's been a long time since many NATO allies have had to fight in the high north where it's super cold and uh, the Canadian allies as well as our, our Norwegian allies, others who operate in the high north as a matter of, of, uh, of routine, they are going to be really helpful in, in bringing this kind of knowledge and training to the rest of the alliance so we have reason to thank Canada there as
0: well. China has claimed the South China Sea as their own. Uh, They're engaging in increasingly aggressive and overt military and naval activity in that area. Could that potentially be a NATO mission? (laughs) I like to keep repeating,
1: and frankly I was just in Beijing a couple of weeks ago, but I like to keep repeating and underscoring you have only to look at the name of NATO to know the answer to that question. NATO is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and so our area of operation is in uh, basically the transatlantic uh, and uh, the space between Europe and North America. Although Iraq that, isn't there, well, that's true. That's a very good point, and we do contribute to counterterrorism missions elsewhere, and have contributed for many years to the Resolute Support Mission, before that ISAF in Afghanistan, as an effort to uh, fight terrorism and ensure that we're pushing back against violent extremism. So that's a very good point. But in terms of you know uh, NATO becoming a global alliance, which is what is implied by your question, I think we have to stick to our knitting. We have to stick to where we see our major geographic threats, and that is the uh, North Atlantic uh, Treaty Organization area. Let me just stress though that NATO allies do obviously operate in that area. The United States, UK, uh, France, they have been engaging in freedom of navigation exercises in that area, but they do so as individual countries, not as part of a NATO um, rubric.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. It's been great talking to you, thank you. In 2014, Russia annexed Crimea and the war in Ukraine has continued since then. Over 10,000 Ukrainians have been killed and the situation appears to continue to escalate with false elections being run by the Russians in eastern Ukraine. They've been condemned by NATO, Canada and other allies as well. Now we're seeing the Ukrainians blocking ships going into Crimea and Russian threats of retaliation. Here to talk to us about that today is Ukrainian Foreign Minister Pavlo Klimkin. Uh, Minister, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, I'd like to start by asking you about some of these recent developments. We don't see Ukraine as much in the Canadian news anymore. But the war there is still very real. What's going on on the ground?
2: It's, it's actually really a shame. It's, uh, it's not just about this political wave of attention to Ukraine. It's also about understanding and having emotion about Ukraine. And we have real hot war in Ukraine. Almost every night uh, Ukrainian soldiers are killed along the touchline because uh, the Russians uh, keep sending to the occupied Donbass regular troops, mercenaries, and of course the whole lot of weaponry. At the same time it's a total clampdown on human rights and everything in the occupied Donbass. And a big attempt to resettle people from Russia to squeeze out real Ukrainians and real Crimean Tatars. So real Crimeans who who have uh, their land in Crimea. You've mentioned azov Sea and the Russian attempt of creeping annexation. But it's a mixture of conventional means we are talking about. And also what's normally called hybrid or non-conventional with a fundamental attempt of disinformation and you need to learn actually from Ukraine because uh, the Russian goal is to undermine and weaken up democratic institutions also here and you should be really vigilant and prepared for fighting the Russians in the sense of their conventional but especially non-conventional attempts.
0: Why is that kind of propaganda so dangerous for some people who think it's just Twitter? It's just words. It's not tanks and guns.
2: Because of uh, real uh, trust and credibility of democratic institution. It's not just about government. Uh, it's about uh, the sense of democratic society. Russian project, how the Russian president believes he, he had created it, It's a completely different system from normal understanding of democratic society. It's not about free and democratic society. So uh, you can't uh, fight directly because Russia don't have resources for that. No, they are prepared because they have crossed any red line. But uh, they can't also project soft power in the sense of attraction. What's positive can you say now about Russia after all the actions? So deliberate attempt to undermine through cyber attacks, through the whole way of disinformation, basically creating trouble, stirring up trouble and saying, "Uh aha, democratic institutions are not the most effective ones. So uh, to have uh, a kind of adversary in front of you who is weakened. Who, do, uh, who, uh, who does not have any more of the sense of transatlantic solidarity. And transatlantic solidarity is basically what works against Russia. Is exactly what the Russian, uh, Russian attempts, uh, you know, keeps targeting.
0: So if Canada could be targeted and there are Canadian soldiers in Ukraine helping to train Ukrainian forces,
2: the and West... be we extremely appreciate it. It's, it's, it's a great way of having not just strategic partnership and not just friendship, but being allies in fighting against the Russian aggression and fighting for uh, for the democratic future of Ukraine. We extremely appreciate it.
0: Is the West doing enough, though? I know and you met with Mike Pompeo, and he said they will never accept Crimea being a part of Russia. And the West talks about it and says that NATO is there and, and sends those troops, but they're not arming you. They're not stepping in and stopping Russia. Do you think that... Deterrent value is still there?
2: We have defense supplies from a number of Western countries. Let me just mention javelins from the United States. But we definitely need more because uh, strengthening our ability to counter Russian threats would definitely serve the whole democratic world. We are now at the forefront of fighting against Russia. So what we could do additionally with Canada, with the United States, with the European Union, would be much appreciated. It's about training. It's about sharing information. It's about infrastructure. It's about defense supplies. Of course, it's about helping us to transfer our defense and security sector up to the NATO standards. So it's a number of very ambitious challenges in front of us. But uh, we've been working really well with our Canadian friends here.
0: Do you think you'll ever get Crimea back?
2: Definitely. Look, Crimea under occupation is going totally nowhere. Totally nowhere. Now it's, as as I have said, fundamental clampdown on human rights. Even in the former USSR, the people were able uh, to uh, tell different jokes you know, it's just routine jokes. And now the fear is, uh, is, is really at the level that the, that the people are afraid of talking to each other. It's a massive attempt to get people from Russia and to squeeze out everyone who is, uh, who is not, uh, you know, uh, a normal guy, a normal person in the sense of being uh, able to agree with occupation. It's uh, economy of Crimea going nowhere because uh, there are no tourists from Ukraine. It's just a number of Russia who, who is normally half cent uh, from uh, Russia in a very obligatory way. It's not about uh, any attempt of kicking off economy. Uh, occupied Crimea under Russian occupation is going nowhere. So fundamentally, we will be able to get Crimea back. It's about our ability to counter the Russians. But of course, it's also about our ability to become a really sustainable and very effective democracy. as a kind of beacon for the people who, are, who live in Crimea now under total pressure and under Crimean occupation.
0: Does that mean the Ukrainian government has to work on democracy and corruption
2: as well? Look, definitely on democracy, we are a democratic society now. But the challenge of corruption, the challenge of creating a real rule of law like you have it here in Canada, and it's also one of the important points of Canadian assistance, is definitely there. And we have to be up to this challenge. I mentioned Strategic Partnership Commission with the United States we had yesterday in Washington and one of the key topics is U.S. but also Canadian assistance to uh, help us creating the best possible uh, infrastructure of tackling corruption. Now we have corruption prevention Agency, special anti-corruption prosecutor, anti-corruption bureau. In a couple of months, we will have a special anti-corruption code. So it's a, it's a real attempt to go forward. Uh, it does not work uh, like we wanted it to have from the very beginning. But we have to bear up to this challenge. Without delivering on that, we are not able to, uh, to overcome all kinds of challenges uh, around the Russian aggression.
0: Do you think Russia will act again in
2: other countries as it has in Ukraine? Yeah, definitely. Look, uh, they don't have any red lines anymore. They crossed uh, all the red lines in Donbass, in Crimea, in Syria. So, and fundamentally, Russia is a kind of junkie. Russia, the whole society, is dependent on this external, uh, external, uh, you know, drive to uh, to look like like a great power, like uh, like a new empire. And uh, the people would need more and more in the sense of, of this drive. And it's extremely dangerous, not only for Ukraine, but for the whole democratic world.
0: Minister, thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure. There's been a lot of discussion this weekend talking about America's role in the world and President Trump. Here to join us to talk about that is Senator Mike Rounds. Thank you so
3: much for joining us, Senator. Appreciate the opportunity to visit.
0: I'd like to talk to you about that first question that's come up so often, and you were on a panel talking about this. What is America's role in the world right now, and do you think there's an increase in isolationism?
3: I think America understands that it has a role to play. I think America also understands that it wants participation from other leading countries as well. And I think that's where part of the discussion goes on. I think that's what the president is sharing, is is that he wants other neighbors, other countries, other allies to help in this process. But he's also trying to suggest that back home, we've got people that are hurting too. And when he came in, we had an economy that had high unemployment. Our GDP was less than 2%. He was saying, look, I'm going to focus on what's good here in America as well. And he did. And in doing so, we had to change some things domestically. It may not be exciting, but we had to change and redo our tax structure. We had to get rid of thousands of regulations. Uh, He wanted to make some modifications within our judiciary. He's done those things. And at the same time, that was a focus internally. On the outside, when it came time to act, this president did. Uh, If you take a look at Syria when we had the uh, chemical weapons attacks, he didn't sit back and ponder on it, he took action. And so he does want to be a leader and we want to be leaders. Sometimes our president has a different way of approaching things, uh, but within the United States Senate, you find some pretty strong bipartisan support for some of our major alliances, including NATO. And that's the reason that we're here this this week is to share with everybody else, we're on solid ground, We believe in NATO. We want to see it continue on. And we want to see it continue to be strengthened. And we want their help to do so.
0: You sit on the Armed Services Committee, and there's a report that came out this week, I'm sure you're familiar with, saying that Russia and China are catching up to the United States. There's also been a question about whether the president might cut the military budget to reduce the deficit. Are you anticipating a a cut in military spending?
3: I would be surprised if we actually have a cut in military spending. Now, saying that in the last, this year and next year, the two most recent budgets, the ones that we're in right now, we actually increased defense spending um, by about $168 billion over that two-year time period. So the Department of Defense has resources available that it desperately needed after several years of what we call sequestration, where there was cut after cut after cut. We're going to be able to afford to, to, to pay for survival and that's what we're talking about here. Uh, The primary role of the federal government is the defense of our country. It will be a priority. We also know that our near-peer competitors, China and Russia, have not slowed down. And in fact they are catching up with us. And so if that's the case, this year, next year, no. That's not where the issue is going to be. The issue is going to be five years, six years, seven years down the road, and if we don't start now, to modernize, and to look at our strategic weapon systems, to look at the fifth domain of cyber, and if we don't stay ahead of them at that point several years from now, we would be in trouble. And that's the message we're sending. We're looking ahead. We're not trying to, we're not trying to play games on it. We just simply know that our weapon systems are old and getting older. We need a new bomber, the B-21. We need the F-35 fully implemented. We need our cyber warriors to be released so that they can actually do what they came in to to the armed services to do, which is to do battle with the other guys in the fifth domain of of cyber. That's what we're doing within the armed services committee. That's what we're focused on.
0: A report says that the CIA believes that the crown prince of Saudi Mm -hmm. Arabia directly ordered and was involved in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. I know you've talked about taking greater action on the world stage. Is it time for the U.S. to be tougher on Saudi Arabia?
3: I think we're going to have to make a response, and I think clearly the administration, CIA as part of the administration, is publicly saying exactly what they found out. How they move into the next step, which is sanctions or an expectation on the part of the Saudi government that they're going to respond, that remains to be seen yet. But nonetheless, there will be action taken. And this is unfortunate because Saudi Arabia has been an ally. They've been one of our allies in our fight against terrorism. We want that to continue on, but we can't allow them to do what Russia does, which is to try and execute people in other countries and so forth. So there is a penalty to be paid. What the expectation of that penalty is, I don't have the answer to but I'm quite certain that the administration will make proposals, and then it'll be up to Congress to decide whether or not those proposals are appropriate.
0: In terms of public language, Canadians see the president's tweets. They pay close attention to what he's saying, and there's concern in Canada about some of that and about some of the rhetoric coming from the White House and that Republicans are supporting. Do you think there's an issue with the kind of language, like invaders, that President Trump is using?
3: Yeah, look, uh, the president is not necessarily speaking in politically correct terms. He's having casual conversations with the American public, but as the President of the United States, those casual conversations go worldwide. This President has been very transparent. He says what's on his mind. What I tell people is as I see the tweets and so forth, and I I don't necessarily agree with what he's tweeting, but I do care about what his actual actions are. So if he does a tweet, and I disagree with it, I'll say I disagree with it.
0: But can that language inflame people or encourage, for example, neo-Nazis who have been praising some of his wording?
3: It can, to any type of a faction, have an impact. It, it, can, it can have an impact on our allies. It can have an impact on his supporters. It can have an impact on those people that literally don't agree on the same things that he does because it energizes them. You saw that in the election. There's some of that where... People were saying they had an impact on this, they were sending a message to President Trump. That's a part of the political process today. So when it comes to the tweets and so forth, would I be doing it that way? No. The President has shown that it's been a successful way to the White House. It's transparent. And what I tell people is, is I look at this as if it's a, a, a coffee-clotch conversation. He's sitting down, he's uh, around a table of people, and he's saying what's on the top of his mind. Just like we do at coffee clutches, the difference is his coffee clutch entails the entire United States and most of the world. When that happens, <coughs> excuse me when that happens, people aren't used to that. What I tell people is is I take it with a grain of salt, and what I really want to know is what are the actions that he's taking. He says he wants to be friendly with President Putin. I accept that he would like to be, but I also look at his actions where he has made sanctions uh, heavy sanctions on Russia a part of his foreign policy. So it's not necessarily that the tweeting necessarily dictates what his actions will actually be, but it does suggest some of the thought processes that he has.
0: One last very quick Canadian question for you. Uh, As you know, there's steel and aluminum tariffs uh, that are national security related on Canada right now brought by President Trump. You're from South Dakota, a lot of trade with Canada. Do you agree that Canada is a national security threat?
3: Look, we think that most of us have said that we think that was a mistake for the president to use that particular section of the law. There were other sections that he could have had. Canada is our closest ally. We all recognize that. What the president was suggesting was that our steel trade and our aluminum trade is in real trouble. Our industries are in real trouble. He wanted to be able to find a way to rebuild our national steel and aluminum manufacturing processes. What I think most of us have said, though, is is you have to give credit for the fact that our closest ally is uh, is manufacturing steel and aluminum and if that is the case they should be a part of our economy as well and so for most of us look in South Dakota right now our soybeans are part of a retaliation by China they're down in value we'd like to store soybeans we'd like to store corn during this time in which our prices are down but in order to build a grain bin you gotta have steel and aluminum so our producers are saying gee I'm going to get hit not only with lower prices on my soybean, but I'm also going to get hit with paying more to put up a steel bin to store them in for a while. So my folks are feeling that as well. But most of my farmers, my producers, are also saying this is the first president in generations that's cared enough about us to actually go in and challenge and try to make a better deal. And we're going to give him enough time to see if he can't be successful in doing so. I am very pleased that we've got a proposal on the table and that according to everything we're seeing about november 30th we should have a deal put together be got rid with mexico and canada if that happens i think we can move fairly quickly on the issues of tariffs on steel and aluminum at least that's my hope
0: senator thank you so much for your time today you bet. Thanks for checking out the West Block podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and listen on your Apple podcast, Google podcast, or wherever you find your podcast. And join the conversation at the West Block, Facebook, and check out our Instagram page. And please tune in again.